Let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And during that time, we have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you afforded us this time to be here this morning to concentrate on your mighty word. For it is your word that is truth. There's much deception and confusion and propaganda in the days that we live in. We're so thankful that your word lives and abides forever. Moreover, it is alive and powerful. So we pray that you will help us to focus our attention on your word this morning, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the, I don't know if you call it a series, a special, or what. It has to do with uh, Christians, government, and Romans 13. It has to do with the relationship, the biblical relationship that believers have with their government. I know that I see some of you fanning back there, and the air conditioning is working. It'll just take a little while for it to catch up, especially with this many people here this morning. We just have to learn how to use it. <laughs> it's not the thermos. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not the thermostat's fault or the air conditioning. But I think we got that squared away. So, if you want to fan, fan. It's not going to bother me. Hopefully, the cool coolness will catch up. There are basically three viewpoints with regards to the Christian and his relationship with government. The first one has to do with the idea that government has unlimited authority. We've already handled all three viewpoints, but that one was probably the easiest one to dispense with because no one other than God has the unlimited authority, and even his authority is limited by his own attributes. The second viewpoint has to do with the idea that, a, that the government has limited authority in areas of faith. That would mean if you have the government telling you that you cannot pray, the government telling you you cannot witness, you can't do things that the Bible commands us to do, then we are to obey God rather than man. The third viewpoint has to do with the government being limited, but not only in matters of faith, but also in matters of freedom. Unfortunately today, people have not been taught history, especially the younger people. And the older people probably learned it and forgot it by now. Most people really don't know about the history of our own country they don't know what the Constitution says. They don't know what the Declaration of Independence says. And they don't know what the Bill of Rights are so, or what it is. So what we find ourselves is being essentially dumbed down. And whenever someone speaks out dogmatically about the biblical position with regards to Christians and government, it sounds somewhat audacious because uh, they haven't really been educated properly with regards to these matters. I think where I'm going to start today, I'm going to have the notes up on the board. 
We've already gone through all three of these viewpoints. Is the, is the TV on over here? Who's got the flicker? Oh, it's a, okay, it's coming up, okay. Um, we've already looked at the, the, the three viewpoints. And there's many questions that I've asked. I believe when I started last Sunday, I said there was already over 60 questions that were asked. And the idea is to get you to think. This has nothing to do with politics. No political figure, no political party. That's not what this is about. Nor does it in, have anything to do with trying to persuade you to vote, not vote, or vote for someone or something. That's not what it's about either. Hopefully you're going to have an open mind and give it a fair hearing all the way to the end. That way you'll get the full perspective. And there is still a lot to come. So where I want to start this morning is asking the question, when people become Christians, do they forfeit their right to be free? Because people have gone to Romans 13, Christians have, and they, they take it, from my perspective, out of context, and they think that we are obliged to submit to tyranny. And if that's the case, then when you become a believer... If that is the correct rendering of Romans chapter 13, as well as uh, other passages in the Bible, then you really forfeit your right to be free because you have to, the Bible would command you to submit to tyranny. Do they forfeit their right to protect? I had already been talking about the, the right to bear arms and so forth. Do they, being Christians, forfeit their right to protect themselves and their children from anyone who would harm or endanger them? Does God deny them the right to resist these evils because they are a matter of freedom rather than faith? Does God make that distinction? That you, you don't have a freedom because it is not a matter of faith. Therefore, God, does he make that distinction? Those, those are some of the issues we're dealing with. Now we're going to go to the scriptures. You might want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, verse 1, and make notations there if you'd like. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. The first part here says, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. No matter what his or her position in life may be, every person is answerable to authority. Every person. It doesn't matter if you're a king, if you are a prime minister, whether you are a president, whether you are a, a sheik. doesn't matter who you are. You don't rise so far in your authority that you are no longer un, uh, under authority. Everyone is answerable to authority. Of course, God is the ultimate authority, and legitimate authority, no legitimate authority exists apart from Him. 
Think about that for a moment. God is the ultimate authority, and all legitimate authority comes from God. All legitimate authority. Now, other scriptures deal with the authority of God and how He's delegated it in other areas, such as marriage and family and the church. For instance, in the area of the family, the husband is the highest authority in the family. You don't go higher than the husband in the family as far as authority is concerned. Does that mean that he's not under authority? Of course not. He's under God's authority, and God limits his authority. With regards to the church, the pastor-teacher is the highest authority in the church. It wasn't that, so, it wasn't that way when the um, first century church was on earth because you had apostles then that had a higher spiritual gift as far as authority is concerned. But there are no longer apostles, so the pastor is the highest authority in the church. Does that mean that the, the pastor is not answerable to any authority? No, he's answerable to God, just like the husband is answerable to God. And then when you get into the civil realm... I don't know what you would say the highest authority is in our land. I don't want to give something away that I'm about to show you. So I'll just say whatever the highest authority is in the land, in our land, is still submissive, must be submissive to a higher authority. That's the concept that is trying to be given here. God has delegated certain authority to mankind in order to maintain and preserve the human race. Now, here's a quote from D.A. Carson, New Bible Commentary, 21st Century Edition. Mr. Carson says, Perhaps the best solution, then, is to view Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, as a general statement about the Christian, about how the Christian should relate to government with exceptions to this advice, assumed but not spelled out here. If you just go to the first verse, and that's all you all you read, then people can misconstrue this and say, okay, well, it says that we are to uh, obey the government. Again, it says that every person be in subjection to governing authorities. Some people just read that far, which is a general statement. They don't go any further than they think, well, I'll submit to every law, every person, every mandate, everything, I'm submit to it. No, this is, as Mr. Carson says, a general statement with exceptions to this advice assumed, but not spelled out here. One other thing that I ought to mention right now is that one of the biggest mistakes that people do when they go to the Bible, and they're especially reading Romans chapter 13, is they believe that, uh, that this part of Scripture is pertinent to any government. And the context of this, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, has to do with a government that is operating properly, under the limits that is given in this portion of Scripture. They are acting as, or it is acting, as a minister of God for good. The whole context is under that area of Scripture. It's, it's, that's the context. And to take that context and try to apply it, or these Scriptures that are for that, and try to apply it to a government that is out of control and that is encroaching upon the freedoms of the people is a gross 
misunderstanding and it's a it's it's just does not fit. For there is no authority except from God. Listen to this carefully. No one has authority from himself. And those of the authority that is legitimate has been delegated from God. When one assumes authority that is not from God, then it is counterfeit, illegitimate, and therefore requires no respect or submission. The concept is similar to what we have in our, in our country. Before I get into this, let me tell you this. Is there authority? Have, have people taken authority to themselves that has not been delegated by God in this world? Absolutely. I mean, you have, you have tyranny. You have uh, tyrants and despots. You have warlords and kingpins and mafia heads. And all these people have taken to themselves authority, but it was not delegated by God. And any authority that has not been delegated by God is illegitimate. Now, the concept, this concept, that all legitimate authority is delegated by God, and that is the highest authority, this concept is similar to the structure of our authority in this country. The United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights were instituted to be the supreme law of the land. Now, I want you to, before I go any further, I, want you to, I need to make a clear distinction here. The, the Constitution does not give us our rights. All the Constitution does and the Bill of Rights is acknowledge the rights that we already have. Long before the Constitution came into play, there were the people, the colonists, for example, of our country that founded this country, already knew that they had rights that were given by God. Even though they weren't in a constitutional form, they knew that they had God-given rights. In fact, a good illustration of that was on April the 19th, uh, 1775, when you had the British march into Lexington. Now, there already had been a lot of usurpation from the king, and they knew that this would be the last straw. They were going there specifically to get the powder and the munitions and the arms in order to, to dis, disarm the, the colonists. So the colonists knew that this was wrong because as a person, not just a believer, but as a person, God gives you the right to defend yourself. And so the colonists lined up on the grain there, and they, of course, were armed. And when the British came, they essentially said, you're not crossing this. You're not getting our weapons. They, weren't, they didn't attack the British. They weren't fomenting a revolution. They simply said, this is our God-given right. We have the right to defend ourselves, and you shall not take that right away. Well, the British fired first, and then the colonists returned fire. And the... British overall got the worst of it because then they marched to Concord. And when they got to Concord, there was a Reverend William Anderson. He was a pastor. And he was on that green along with others that understood that they had the right from God to defend themselves. And they did essentially the same thing. There was a battle there. But as the British 
went back to New York, they were severely punished. I had the figures, but I can't remember. They were overwhelmingly uh, against the British. So what my point is, we have a constitution, and in the Bill of Rights, it enumerates some of our God-given rights. Not all of them. Ninth Amendment tells, uh, lets us know that this isn't, doesn't encompass all our rights. We have rights that are not enumerated in the Bill of Rights. So the Constitution does not give us our rights. Right? Who gives us our rights? God does, doesn't He? So, I'm going to make a comparison here. The concept that all, God, all authority is delegated by God, that is a legitimate authority, and God is the ultimate authority overall. Now, I'm going to make a comparison with the uh, Constitution in our country. The concept is similar to the structure of authority in our country. The United States Constitution, the Bill of Rights, were instituted to be the supreme law of the land. Any law, code, rule, regulation, or statute that is contrary to the Constitution is counterfeit, illegitimate, and requires no respect or submission. This is not just an opinion of me or anyone else. This happens to be a declaration from the Supreme Court. This is the quote from Marbury versus Madison. This was in 1803. Quote, all laws which are repugnant to the Constitution are null and void. End of quote. Then we have a quote from the Independent Republic by Rosas Rashduni. How would you like to have a name like that? Here's his quote. He says, it, and then what he's talking about is the Constitution, its conce uh, con conception of power was Christian. The Constitution was, what he's saying is the Constitution was founded upon Christian principles. Power is ministerial, not legislative. What that means is that the Constitution gives the representatives of our country the authority to administer law, but it does not give it the authority to originate law. That's what it means. What it says about it uh, is it's not legislative. Now I know we have a legislative branch, and I know that they uh, produce bills, and if it's signed by the president, it becomes law. But this is talking about the origination of law. It's saying there essentially there is a law higher than those that are in government that are administering the Constitution. So. Power is ministerial, not legislative. That is, powers in any area, church, state, school, or family, are not endowed with the ability to create laws apart from the higher law, but only to administer fundamental law as man is able to grasp and approximate it. In other words, yeah, man can make laws, but he is not the originator of law. And he is has to be subordinated to that higher law. You see the right in here where it says higher law? Right here. Let's see if I can do this. Oh, wait a minute. I paid $100 for this program. 
Uh Uh-oh. I better leave it alone. (laughs) Where's my pointer? Okay. Higher law. Right there. I'm going to practice to get better at that. So, they are ministerial rather than uh, just originate the law. It's the civil government is thus an administrator rather than a creator of law. It is not sovereign over law, but is under law. Under God's law. That has been called by different names. Sometimes it's been called common law. There was a time that, especially in England, uh, they were functioning, well, in Europe, they were functioning under the divine right of kings, supposedly. They say the people make the king and the king makes the laws. And that that was a fallacy. And then you uh, had the Magna Carta come come by and they started... Uh, restricting what the king could do, that he couldn't just make any law. He's not the creator of law. The doctrine of express powers. Now, express powers means those that uh, the Constitution gives. In other words, the government is not able, according to our Constitution, which is what? Supposedly the highest law in the land. It cannot do anything it wants. In fact, it can't do anything unless it is specifically stipulated in the Constitution. If it's not specifically stipulated in the Constitution, they can't do it. And just to make sure the people forced upon the Congress the Bill of Rights, which starts out saying, Congress shall not, and it says all the things you are not to do. So it's really putting shackles on them. So the doctrine of express powers is a strong limitation on even the administrative or ministerial role of civil government. And that was by the Independent Republic by Rush Dooney. Here's another quote. An unconditional act is not law. It confers no rights, imposes no duties, affords no protection. It creates no office. It is in legal contemplation as inoperative as though it had never been passed. And this is by uh, a Supreme Court decision, Norton versus Shelby County. Here's another quote. This is by Reverend Stephen Johnson. It was in a sermon that he gave in 1765. This is what he says. It was but a logical step to assert as was done in colonial America, that where the authority exercised by the executive or legislature exceeds the bounds of the law of God, the acts of these of these bodies are ipso facto void. And I know what some of you may be thinking. What is ipso facto? So I have a little note here. In law, this ipso facto is frequently employed to convey the idea that something that has been done contrary to law is automatically void. It is a Latin phrase directly translated as by the fact itself, which means that a certain effect is a direct consequence of the action in question. So ipso facto means it's void on its on its face. And then Thomas Aquinas said, quote, an unjust law is no law at all, and there is 
a duty, an obligation not to obey it. Now, I'm going to read something that came from Chuck Baldwin, which was a presidential candidate, and he is a pastor teacher down in Florida. This came from newswithaview.com. This is what he said. We in the United States of America do not live under a monarchy. We have no king. There is no single governing official in this country. America's supreme law does not rest with any man or any group of men. America's supreme law does not rest with the president, the Congress, or even the Supreme Court. In America, the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Under our laws, every governing official publicly promises to submit to the Constitution of the United States. Do readers understand the significance of this distinction? In other words, every time there is a government official elected to any office, he has to put his hand on the Bible and raise his hand and take an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. So, in doing so, he recognizes that he is a servant of the Constitution and the people. He goes on to say, this means that in America, the highest powers, the higher powers that, we're, that we see in Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7, are not the men who occupy elected office. They are the tenets and principles set forth in the U.S. Constitution. And I would add, and the Bill of Rights. Under our laws and form of government, it is the duty of every citizen, including our elected... Listen to this. It is the duty of every citizen, as well as our elected officials. They are obliged to obey the U.S. Constitution. Therefore, this is how Romans chapter 13 reads to Christians in America. Now, he's going to give, he's quoted, what I have in blue is the scripture, Romans chapter 13. We go through seven verses here or thereabouts, and this is the New American Standard Version. He says, let every soul be subject to the U.S. Constitution, for there is no constitution but of God, the constitution that be is ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the constitution resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation for the constitution is, these are in brackets you recognize, is not a terror to good works but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the constitution? By the way, this isn't the New American, this isn't the Standard Version. This has to be the King James. Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For the Constitution is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do what uh, which is evil, be afraid, for the Constitution beareth not the sword in vain. For the Constitution is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, we, ye must be needs. I don't like reading the King James, but. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause, pay ye tribute also, for the Constitution is God's minister attending continually upon this very thing. 
And then it says render uh, tribute and so forth. So all he's doing is saying, okay, if we're going to abide by what God says we are to submit to the higher powers, in our country, the higher powers are not people. It's the Constitution. Even the people that administer the government in our country are subservient, submissive to the Constitution. We all are under the Constitution. And in that way, what I'm trying to, I, made, I said this to bring up a comparison, and that is just as God's overruling law and mandate is over all, so in a smaller way, the Constitution over our land is over all, both ruler and citizen. He ends it by saying this. Dear Christian friend, the above is exactly the proper understanding of our responsibility to civil government in these United States per the teaching of Romans chapter 13. That is the end of that quote from Chuck Baldwin, Pastor Chuck Baldwin. The Bible puts restraints on those to whom God delegates authority and they are responsible to him to stay within the limits that he has set. The Constitution Bill of Rights puts limits on those in government to be responsible to the people and to God by staying within those limits. They are, I said this a while ago, they are accountable to both God and the people. It's difficult for some people these days to accept the fact that our nation has essentially abandoned the rule of law under the Constitution and now operates unconstitutionally through executive orders, statutes, codes, rules, and regulations that have not been enacted into positive law. Positive law is a law that is the exact words approved and passed by Congress. We're not operating under the Constitution. The federal government has grown so large. Uh, this is a, a great, a great uh, line here. And I, it didn't come from me. Someone sent me an email and had an attachment. And this is what they said just in the body of their email to me. And I thought it was so good I had to include it in this. Listen to this. Very good. He said, The federal government has grown so large and so corrupt that it makes little difference who controls any branch of it. The money, the money interests can buy any candidate they want and outspend all the tea parties and protesters combined while any candidate that doesn't make his peace with the establishment, which would be the insiders in Washington, D.C., will subsequently be destroyed by the media. I see a lot of heads going there going like this. We need to not hide our head in the sand. Let's look at the situation as it is. A couple of Sundays ago, I gave you reasons why it is, from my perspective, a valid accusation to say that our government is out of control. The reason it's out of control is because it is not submitting to the Constitution, and it's not submitting to the Constitution because the people haven't held the representatives, the elected officials, accountable, and a lot of them haven't held them accountable because they are Christians and they think that they have to be under tyranny and they don't have the biblical right to hold the government accountable. And nobody's talking about it. I don't want to teach this. 
There's a lot of other things I'd rather teach, but this is desperately needed. I'm asking all these questions to get you to think. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just trying to get you to think because we have been dumbed down. We have been propagandized every single day. We On, on the news, it just makes me cringe every time. It happened uh, yesterday, or it was Friday on the news. Oh, we're going to get back into the uh, recession. And we, we, what is the Fed going to do? The Fed. The Fed is a private corporation owned by international bankers that control our economy. But it's, people start thinking, oh, well, you know, let's shake in our boots until the head of the Federal Reserve tells us what he's going to do with our economy. Art, the next thing you know, they're talking about the president has made a decision. We're going to war. And when is it going to be? It's not. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Constitution say that America is not taken to war until there is a declaration of war from the Congress? And the gutless wonders in Congress don't want any responsibility, so they dodge that and shirk their responsibility and say, well, whatever the president wants to do, we're fine with that. So when the war goes bad, they, you can't look at us. And the people, I remember the exact day when they made that decision to give the president carte blanche, take us to war, whatever you want to do. And it, it was just a little blurb on the news. And I thought, why is that? Not, where, where is the huge outcry from the people? Well, it was nowhere. Because people don't think anymore. They don't know what their rights are. They don't know anything. All they know is what the propaganda they hear off the boob tube. End of diatribe. For now. Congress routinely passes unconstitutional bills that are signed by the president and allowed by the Supreme Court that violate the rights of the people. Slowly, incrementally, and over time, this encroachment on our rights has been tolerated by the people to where the people have become the servants and the government is now the master. Here's a quote from James Madison. There are more instances of the abridgment of the freedom of the people by the gradual and silent encroachment of those in power than by violent, sudden usurpation. In other words, you better fear and be alert with regards to your government more so than invading armies because it's a slow, incremental encroachment and violation of your liberties that is the norm, and that's takes away more freedom than invading armies. The next phrase, and those which exist are established by God. Some misunderstand this sentence in thinking that any authority in existence, whether good or bad, is established by God, and I'm saying not so. In fact, I think that's a blasphemous statement, to think that every authority, whether good or bad, comes from God. There are many who, de who have delegated authority to themselves, authority that did not come from God, nor was established by God. Dictators, tyrants, despots, warlords, mafia heads, banking syndicates certainly have power and they assert their authority, but it's not legitimate because it is not delegated to them by God. God does not delegate authority to a mafia head or a tyrant or a despot. Since the authority structure to govern man was established by God and delegated by God, anyone who tries to establish their own authority apart from him is not legitimate. 
Here's a quote from Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 7. That's right. Habakkuk is a book in the Bible. I taught it years ago. I just had a yearning to go to Habakkuk and teach Habakkuk. It's a great book. It is a hoot. It starts out, Habakkuk is saying, everything has gone awry in the land, Lord. What's the deal? How come you haven't come down on the people? He's kind of chiding God for not being alert and taking care of business. And he tells Habakkuk, and I'm, this is it, I'm not paraphrasing, he says this. He says, Habakkuk, you're not going to believe what I'm going to do. That's what it's translated into English. And when he tells Habakkuk how he's going to pour his wrath out on those who are disobedient, Habakkuk's not happy then either. Now he's oh, you're overdoing it, Lord. Anyway, Habakkuk, 1-7. They, referring to the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans were those of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar was their king. They, the Chaldeans, are dreaded and feared. Listen to this. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. All pagan nations are that way. God doesn't delegate the authority of the shenanigans they pull. Now, the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, were cruel, ruthless pagans whose authority structure originated with themselves and had nothing to do with the authority structure God established. King Nebuchadnezzar thought he was answerable to no one, not even to God, and the people's rights were ignored. God had to give Nebuchadnezzar an attitude adjustment. He was up on his, on his castle strutting about, look at all I've done. I am, woo, I am somebody. And God said, no, you're an arrogant, pompous ass. Well, he didn't say it exactly that way, but I'm... And so he just had, I think you, you need to go out and visit the cows. He lived with the cows. Well, I think it was five years, seven years. How long was it? His, his hair grew long and his nails, and he was eating grass for seven years. And finally, after it took so many years, he couldn't even speak. He just looked up, and he essentially said, I understand, Lord. <laughs> and he became a believer. God sometimes uses pagan nations to discipline his people but he doesn't approve of anyone who ignores his authority and abuses people. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar and eventually became a believer. So, you get the jest there. Any authority, that's what the first uh, verse is about, is about all authority comes from God. Anybody that assumes authority to themselves, that is not delegated by God, is out of line, they're illegitimate, and they got trouble coming. All right, verse 2. Y'all ready for verse 2? Boy, at this rate, this is going to turn into a series, I can tell. That's all right, whatever it takes. Verse 2. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. First of all, we start out with therefore, and I'm reading, this is the New American Standard Version. It says, therefore, he. However, in the King James Version, it says, Whosoever, therefore, in the New King James Version, in the English Standard Version, it says, therefore, whoever. The context includes anyone, whether citizen or a ruler. You got that? That's where a lot of people start getting off right off the bat because they think, oh, well, this is talking about the citizen. This is talking about John Q. citizen. Well, yes, it is, but it's also talking about John Q. ruler also. It's all inclusive. So, 
Therefore, whoever we have resist. Now, this Greek word here is antistasso, A-N-T-I-S-T-A-S-S-O. It's a participle, and it's a present middle participle. That means it's an ongoing thing. They keep on resisting. Middle voice means that they're participating in the action of the verb and essentially responsible for it. So anyone who resists, it's, and resist is used metaphorically to set oneself in opposition to or in array against, to resist. The one who resists the order of authority God established has opposed God. Uh, that came from a, a lexicon I have, but I don't have it down here. Has opposed. So, so far we have, therefore, he or whoever resists, keeps on resisting, has opposed. Now, this Greek word is ant. Histamine, and it's A-N-T-H-I-S-T-E-M-I. It's a verb, perfect active indicative. It's a compound word. Anti means against, and histamine means to stand. So it means to stand against. So, or to resist or to defy. The act of opposition occurs in the past, but the results of that resistance continue on. In other words, well, perfect tense means he is already, as we saw here, resisted, and that means that he has opposed. His action takes place in the past, but the results go on. When a leader or a ruler makes a bad decision in the past, it's a completed act, but the results of that goes right on. Understand? Same thing with this opposition. And then we say, Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Now, ordinance here is the Greek word diatage, D-I-A-T-A-G-E. It's a noun, dative, singular, feminine. It means order or arrangement. Here, it refers to the order or arrangement of the authority for God. It just means God has ordered authority in a certain arrangement. And if you try to juggle that around, then you have defied God. Here's a quote from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Quote, The man who withstands the, the official authority ordained by God is in conflict with God's ordinance according to Romans 13.2. Obviously, this does not mean that every governmental decree is God's ordinance. Diatage rather, refers rather to God's ordaining according to verse 1b. Do you remember 1B up here? I'm sorry, this is going to make you dizzy looking at this. Where is it? Is it up here further? Is it way up here, verse 1? Oh, okay. He said this is according to verse 1B. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So he makes a distinction here that what is being said... Is not does not mean that you go to every ordinance. Here it is right here. Diatage refers rather to God's ordaining according to verse 1b of Romans 13. Now, this verse is based upon the premise of verse 1. God has just given a general statement that all people are under authority and are obliged to submit to it. 
And he's talking about legitimate authority delegated by him. So it's based on the premise of verse 1 concerning legitimate authority that was established by God. Anyone who resists legitimate authority, whether he's a citizen resisting the one who governs or the one who governs resisting God, is opposing the ordinance of God. He is opposing the order and the structure that God has laid out for the human race as far as authority is concerned. doesn't matter whether he's a ruler. doesn't matter whether he's a citizen. Therefore... He, referring to whether he's citizen or ruler, who resists authority, and it doesn't state it here, but the context is talking about legitimate authority. Therefore, he, whether it's a citizen or the ruler, who resists legitimate authority, has opposed the ordinance or the order or arrangement of authority of God. You got that? Everything already starts taking on a different shape when you include the rulers in with the people. The rulers are not elite. They're not above the law. They're not even above the people. They are subordinate to the people. And they are subordinate to the laws of God. We're going to see that Romans 13 severely limits God's, I mean, excuse me, government's authority. Then we have a quote. I have Ibit here. Okay, this is from the Theological Dictionary of the New... No, that wouldn't be it. I have Ibid here, which means it's from a previous quote, and I don't know what that one is right now, but let's, let's continue. I'll give that to you. It should be noted that John Adams, in opposing the idea of sovereignty, insisted on the necessity of a double responsibility in civil government to earth, that is, society, and to heaven, our God. Responsibility connotes subordination. We are under those whom we are responsible. So the government is on a double responsibility to society and to heaven or to the people and to God. Man, however, and civil government are and must be responsible agencies. If transcendental responsibility, that is the subordination to God, be removed, then man becomes a creature of the state and responsible to it, and the aseity or self-derived being of the state is asserted. Do you understand what that's saying? Aseity? That's when they uh, uh, do something in metal to see uh, the quality of the metal, uh, to see what its purity is and so forth. And so, <clears throat> here you have that the, the, the gov civil government must be responsible. And he says, if the transcendental responsibility, which he is saying the subordination to God is removed, then man becomes a creature of the state. The state is responsible to uphold the Constitution, and they are subordinate to, they are servants of God and the people. That's the way it is to be structured. That's the way that it is to be administered, but it's not happening. You know it as well as I know it. It's important to recognize that verse 1 and 2 emphasize God's arrangement of authority. Rulers under God's authority and citizens under the ruler's authority. And when both are submitting to the authority over them, all is well. You understand that? God says to believers, you submit to the authority that I delegated. Period. He says to the ruler, you submit to my transcendental which is the law over them, 
not, nor, uh, uh, common law, if you will. You submit, and they submit, and when that is taking off, when both of them are submitting, what happens? All is well. But all is not well. When either one fails to submit to God's arrangement of authority, they receive God's condemnation. Either one! If you decide that you want to cheat someone, if you want to lie, steal, rape, murder, any of these things, you are outside of the authority that God has, has given you. Nobody has authority or the right to do that. Then you're going to be condemned. But it's the same way with the rulers also. And they, see here we, are, here we have it here. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Then we continue now. And they, whether it's the citizen or the ruler, and they who have opposed God's arrangement of authority, that is, will receive condemnation upon themselves. Many fail to recognize that not only the citizen, but also the ruler must subordinate himself to the authority. So they are unsure what to do when an arrogant, insubordinate ruler assumes power and authority that was not delegated to him by God. We have that in space today, do we not? Here's a quote. Is this the one? Now, I, I'm sorry, this is a, long, a fairly long quote. And I, I lost the source. But I'll get it for you. You know, like when someone asks you something about doctrine. You say, I don't know. I can't come up with it. It's not here. But I'll get it. I'll get you this, the source. Anyway, here it is. It's a good quote. He says, Much too often the modern church has sought peace and compromise with the world. As a consequence, the church has comp uh, compromised and allowed the tide of humanism to roll over society and encompass it. I submit to you, this isn't quote. This is just me talking. I submit to you that most churches today are in league with the world. They're competing with the world to get members or to get people to come to their church. They don't want to preach or teach the Word of God because it offends people. And so they dilute it and they dance around the issues and they tell people what they want to hear. And they, some churches have Starbucks in their church. Uh, let's complete. They have all the programs for the children. They're trying to compete with the extracurricular activities of the world, and they can't do it because the world can offer the things that are not of God, and that's attractive to an old sin nature. Back to the quote. That just came out. Sorry. Nowhere has this been more true than in the Christian community's silence and acquiescence to the ever-growing power and unconstitutionality of the federal and state governments and their agencies. The state is abusing its power. It is up to the Christian community, which knows that the state is not absolute, to stop. As long, however, as the state does not claim absolute authority and autonomy... It can exercise a lawful role in establishing order and civil justice. You know what that's, you know what that's saying? We know that our freedoms are, we're losing them. That our lives are being intruded in on more and more. And it's saying as long as the government doesn't come out and say, we are God, you are to worship us, we have absolute authority over you. As long as they're not doing that, 
People just say, well, you know, we still have some freedom. We'll go along with it. That's, the kind of, that's what this is presenting. And then it says, as long, however, as the state does not claim absolute authority and autonomy, it can exercise a so-called lawful role in establishing order and civil justice. In this capacity, the state is called the servant of God in Romans 13.4. We'll get to that, but not today. The problem arises when the state claims not a relative and derivative authority, but an absolute and autonomous one. Remember, a few weeks ago, I was talking about how many of the laws, uh, well, not laws, actually, they're, uh, let's just call it regulations. The, the latest statistics I could find was in 2003. The Federal Register is a bureaucratic agency that keeps track of how many regulations are imposed on the people every year. And in 2003, they had uh, the, the, the regulations are in double column pages, small type. You know how many pages of regulations there were in uh, 2003? Nearly 76,000 pages. That was in 2003. I don't know how many there is today. And they all have essentially the force of law. And Cicero said, the, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, the, the base of a free society is have a few well-understood laws. So the problem arises when the state claims not a relative or derivative authority... By the way, if I, if I was going to be, give you a test right now, I'd be asking you, where does the government get its authority? Does it come up with it on its own? Can, can, the, can the government just say, well, I think we'll have a department of agriculture. I think we'll have a department of education. Nowhere in the Constitution gives it right to do that. Uh, the president can say, I think I'll par appoint some czars. Uh, he said, I think I'll write some executive orders. I think I'll, you know, and he goes on and on, this type of thing. Well, they are deriving authority to themselves that certainly is not in the Constitution. Certainly the God, where, according to the documents of this country, that, this, that is, that this country was found on, where does government get its authority? From the people. They are our servants. They are God's servants. They are ministers, servants, essentially slaves to God to be ministers of good. And when they step out of that delegated role, they become, they become servants of Satan for evil. In modern America, the state does not openly claim divine worship as pagan Rome did. It permits churches to carry on their worship as before. But in effect, it is seeking to make itself the center of all human loyalties, the goal of all human aspirations, the source of all human values, and the final arbiter of all human destiny. In so doing, without using the language of religion, it is claiming to be divine and it is creating a potentially devastating conflict with the church. I think I remember that this is, came from a book uh, ancient Rome. I, I'll get that. I'm just sorry I don't have that quote there. We are the beneficiaries of a common law tradition that is itself is the product of revolutions. 
Ultimately, the history of Western civilization is the history of Christians struggling against unlawful state and the anti-Christian theologies that have undergirded it. That all came from the same source. I think it was ancient Rome. I'll get it for you. Are y'all ready to go to verse 3? Hmm? Hey, I'll take any questions if you have any questions. Verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. This verse continues with the divine standard set for rulers to function within the authority structure designed by God. This means that they are not to oppose God, but are to submit to Him and act as His servant. So let's look at this. We're going to take it a bite at a time. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Those with good behavior have nothing to fear from legitimate authority, but those who are evil have good reason to fear Rulers who have been given authority from God to punish evildoers. Now, the question comes up, what is a good doer? Doers of good. What is good behavior? Well, we go to the Bible. Here's one, Matthew seven twelve. Therefore, however, you want people to treat you, so treat them, for this is the law and the prophets. You ever heard of the golden rule? Essentially, that's what this is talking about. This is the good, not the good, which is believing in Jesus Christ, but in a secular or in a civil realm, you're looking at treat people the way you want to be treated, and that is the good. Luke 6:31, And judge as you want people to treat you, excuse me, and just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. Is that hard? Think of all the tons, libraries full of laws and rules and all this other stuff. And the Bible just says, treat others the way you would have them treat you. If you're treating other people the way you would have to treat, the way they would treat you, then according to this Romans 13, we're going to see that um, you should receive praise from them. Now, let me just give this in a practical aspect. You're driving down the road. You don't have your seatbelt on. You get pulled over. And they said, uh-huh, no seatbelt. That's going to be $250 fine or whatever else it is. And you say, but I'm doing good. I'm not bothering anybody. I'm treating other people as they would have to treat me. I, I, I'm not, I don't need a nanny. I'm an adult. If I want a seatbelt, I can wear it. If I don't want a seatbelt, if it's uncomfortable for me or whatever, that's the risk as a free individual that I can take. But any time the government comes in and starts asserting its authority when they should be praising someone, and instead they are condemning them and fining them, I say they are intruding and they're outside the bounds that God has given them as servants for good. So what are we looking at here? For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. And there's the good. Treat others. America's founders knew about good behavior. Here's a few quotes. Some people will wait for a disaster to swallow them up, and others will choose, like American founders, to passionately fight for a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the two fundamental laws 
that make an advanced civilization possible. This came from ancient Rome and how it affects you today. I think that other that long quote I had was from the same book, but I'll check. You know what he's saying? There are two fundamental laws that we have in our nation. Here are the two laws. One, do all you have agreed to do. Two, do not encroach on other persons or their property. Period. Wouldn't it be a different society if that's how you obeyed and were stayed in good standing before God and the government if you just treated other people the way you would want them to treat you? And if you said you were going to do something, you do it. That's it. You don't need 76,000 pages of regulations. Listen, Jesus Christ is going to come back. He might be coming back soon. And when He comes, that is to get us, but then when He comes at the second advent and He's going to set up a kingdom, Jesus Christ is going to rule the world from the capital city of Jerusalem. And the Bible says He's going to rule with a rod of iron. Any, any person that is going to commit a crime is not going to sit in death row for 20 years. Or they're not going to get life imprisonment. If you rape, if you steal, well, if you rape or if you commit murder, those type of things, you're going to be executed. And he's going to, it's not going to have all these rules. He's going to say, treat others as you would have them treat you. If you say you're going to do something, do it. That's it. Is that freedom? Huh? I hate it when I'm over at H-E-B and I've got to cross the street to get over there to get some gas and I've got to put my seatbelt on across the street. If I don't, it might cost me $250. And I, I'm, I don't like that. <laughs> what is bad behavior? Why is it important that we know? Because it says right here, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. The Bible spells out what good behavior is. But, it's a cause for fear for evil. What, what is evil? What is the bad here? Galatians five nineteen through 21. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, uh, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. That's a pretty long laundry list. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that's a, a theological issue. Suffice it to say that all of us are guilty of one or more of these things. Outbursts of anger. That, that gets every one of us, doesn't it? Huh? This says you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Does that mean you're going to hell? No. You will inhabit the kingdom of God, but you won't inherit it. You won't have inheritance rights because you've, you've been a rascal. Uh, Romans 1, 29 through 32, more bad behavior. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Without understanding, untrust, untrustworthy, 
unloving, unmerciful. And all they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. It's not hard. In fact, we're going to see, because I'm getting closer to it, that the Bible says that God has put into the heart of every person a conscience, and you know what's right and what's wrong. You don't have to have the government come out and spell it out. You don't have to. And if you have a good parent, they're going to really make sure that you know what's right or wrong. And when you sash your mother, especially if you curse her, you're going to find out what ivory soap tastes like or worse. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do, present active imperative, what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So when a person treats others the way he would like to be treated, he should have nothing to fear from governing authorities. If you're good to your neighbor and you, you help your neighbor and you're not out doing something on the list that we just... You should have no fear of the government. When I go to H-E-B across the street to the gas station, I should have no fear of government. I should, my seatbelt doesn't even, I have to find it, open the door and pull it around. The spring's broken. I put it on here. I go two seconds, then I take it all off. That's a, that is a unwarranted fear of government. And it ought not be. Now, I forgot to say this at the first. I am not suggesting or even hinting that we should revolt, that, they, that we should foment a revolution. That is farther, the Bible condemns that. What I'm trying to get you to see is what your relationship biblically with the government is. When a person treats others the way that he should be treated, he should never fear from the governing authorities. God has written his natural law into the heart of man, so he knows what is right and what is wrong. It is when he goes against this that he should fear governing authorities. Don't you know that criminals know that they're doing wrong? Look at this. There's, there's what I was trying to get to. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that means... The Gentiles did not receive the Mosaic law. God gave the law to Israel. And so they don't have the Ten Commandments. They weren't given the law, the Mosaic law. But even though they, were, they did not have the law, they do instinctively the things of the law. These, that is Gentiles, not having the law, are a law to themselves. Verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witnesses, bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. We don't need someone to say, well, you've got to have a seatbelt on. You've got to have insurance. By the way, that latest insurance, you know how, how long it is? Anybody looked at it? I don't remember the name. It makes me mad every time I hear what it is. It's something about it's really safe and it's really cheap or something. But uh, the, I'm talking about the bill that the Congress has passed about the health care bill. That's the one I'm talking about. 
It's oh yeah, well Obamacare, you understand what that is. That over nine hundred pages long. Nine hundred pages. I wonder how much time those congressmen studied that before they voted. I mean, they have just a, you know. Well, anyway, what I'm saying is we we are adults. God holds us responsible for our actions, and He has given us in our heart a conscience to know what is right and what is wrong. Oh, wow, I'm way past time. <laughs> Woo, I guess y'all are sitting there thinking, is he ever going to stop? <laughs> y'all hear any stomachs growling out there? Wow, I just... I, hmm. All right, well, i got to quit, according to the clock. Um, it just didn't seem that long to me. Some of you might be suffering all the way through it. We need to thank people. We need to think about what the Bible says. And we need to be individuals and not have a herd mentality. We don't want to do anything rash or anything that is displeasing to God. But we don't want to be part of the herd and not stand up to the responsibilities that God has given us. As we continue, I hope you think about these things. Everyone, please bow your heads for just a moment. There may be someone here who has not believed in Jesus Christ. That is the issue. That's the main issue. Uh, civil government and your relationship to it has nothing to do or has no comparison to the relationship you should have with Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe. He died for your sins. He was buried, rose again, and offers eternal life to anyone who will trust him and him alone for it. You have the opportunity to do that today simply by saying that you believe in Jesus Christ, trusting in his work whether you're, rather than your own. In that moment, you're born again and become a royal family member. Father, thank you for this time you've given us to focus on these things. This clear thinking, this biblical thinking is desperately needed. Help us to connect the dots so that we can live a life that is pleasing in your sight and that is responsible to you and to others. We pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.